All right, let's get to the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. <clears throat> it's a lot of Bible to read on a Sunday morning, so you might want to lean up against somebody. Start with verse 1, read down to verse 26. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Listen to what the preacher says. <clears throat> I said in my own heart, come now and I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, built houses, and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had, I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from it. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I had expended on doing it, and behold, it was vanity, striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And I saw that there was no more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun is grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will be master of all of which I have toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill 
must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is vanity. It's a great evil. What is a man for all the toil and striving of his heart, which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His works is a vexation. Even, even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink, find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Father, we ask you to help us understand this passage. And by your spirit, speak to us. Be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It seems that the question that has most been asked this week is, can the center hold? And I think the answer has to be, well, that's going to depend on what you think is in the center, what you think the center actually is. I'd rather turn the question, rather than talk about politics or the United States or all that's going on, I'd rather talk about you. What's at the core of who you are? What is it that is holding you together? I know some of you, what you've been through, and my question is, what's kept you from going off the deep end? Or... Some of you have been off the deep end. How would you get back on track? How, how have you held it together? What has grounded you? Soren Kierkegaard was a troubled philosopher of another age. He kept a journal, and in his journal he wrote, Deep within every human being, there still lives the anxiety, there still lives the anxiety of the possibility of being alone in the world, forgotten by God, and overlooked by the millions and millions in this enormous household. That worrisome man wrote that as he, as he thought about his own emptiness. He's the philosopher that gave us the idea of angst. Angst is the strange, not, the strange knowing that each of us has we realize that we're just outside the reach of being satisfied. That's where we find the preacher. In Ecclesiastes 2, what he's done is he's now turned the conversation inward and gives us a picture on the inside. Ecclesiastes 1, he looks at all of creation, all that of life, and he says it's vanity. Now he turns his attention inside. It's what he feels like time after time when he's tried to find some kind of contentment and joy in life. I mean, I, the reason I read the whole thing was there's several different personas and he, 
He takes on several different masks, different personas throughout chapter 2. And as I studied it, I felt like it was talking about some of you. I saw you in some of these. Some of you. I saw your pursuits and your attempts, your frustrations. Today, I'm hoping that you'll see yourself. I hope that when we go through each passage, one of these will connect with you and you'll think, that's what I've been doing. And I hope you'll see your your need to have contentment in Christ. Or if you're already a believer, let's, let's turn your attention back to that which you know. That which is already yours in Christ. Because I believe that we can learn from this passage that without Christ, the frustration never ends. We live in a world that is frustrating, and if that's where you live your life, without Christ, the frustration never ends. Let's get to the passage and see what the preacher has to say. Here's the first thing I want you to consider. Number one, without Christ... Fun, F-U-N, fun, leaves you empty-handed. Now, where do I get that? I'll show it to you in verse 1. The preacher, back in chapter 1, has already said that everything is vanity. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, he decides to uh, put everything to the test. See what he says in verse 1? I'm going to do a little experiment. Come now, I'm going to test, he's talking to himself, I'm going to test you with pleasure, so go enjoy yourself. That's what verse 1 says. I think here he's putting on the mask of someone whose whole goal in life is to have fun. That's some of you. You would be inclined to that. Your your first inclination is that you're not going to do it unless it's actually there is some fun involved. I mean, and who doesn't like who doesn't like to have fun? But more than that, I'm thinking about the person who's whose whole existence has now turned over to pursuing that which, is, that which is enjoyable. And if something is not enjoyable, if it's not going to be have some level of fun involved in it, then you just aren't interested in doing it. I mean, look, you'll see it in, in the passage, verse 2, the, <clears throat> the preacher speaks to laughter. He speaks of, of pleasure and laughter. You drop down to verse 3. And that's not enough, so here's what the preacher does. He introduces alcohol. You'll notice that he's not talking about being, uh, this is not like some drunken frat party. Notice what he says about alcohol in in verse 3. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and then how to lay hold on folly so I might see what was good for the children of men to do under the heaven during the few days that they had to live. So here's what he's done. I want to pursue laughter and pleasure. I'm going to bring alcohol in, but not to the degree where I'm just blind drunk. Here's what I want. I want to, um, I want to be respectful, respectable and responsible. I just need to unwind, loosen up a little bit. So think of it. I'm going to go to the comedy club and then later with my friends, I'm going to go out to the bar Just to have fun. Really what I'm saying here. This is the goal. Verses 1, 2, and 3. The goal becomes having fun. Or entertainment. Or laughter. 
Look, I even feel this. I feel, you can feel this in the church. It happened uh, to a bad degree in the late 80s and 90s when the churches realized, hey, we want to we reach people, so the best way to do that is to make the Sunday morning experience as fun as possible. It really started seeping in to the children's ministries. That, that it started being driven by entertainment. We certainly want it to be enjoyable, but it, that can't be the driving force for the church. It can't be for the church. It can't be for your life. Be careful. Be careful if you are someone who gets bored if you're not having fun. If, if the only emotion you have, if you're not having fun, is that you're bored, then it turns out you might be a shallow person. As a Christian, if, if you find that if, you, if, if Sunday is not fun for you, that you just don't want any part of it, you might be a shallow Christian. Let me just say something about shallow Christianity. Number one, I'm not sure it's Christianity. Number two, it's good for a sunny day. It's all right when the sun is shining, when everything's going well, it evaporates when we roll into the winter of hard times. Now, take a look at what's going on in the world around us. It's where we are. And the preacher says, I'm doing an experiment here in verses 1, 2, and 3. And I want you to go back and look at the assessment he makes of his experiment with fun. Verse 1, he says, it was a vanity. It is havil. Verse 2, he says, look, this is, this is madness. Verse 3, or verse 2, he even asked the question, what, what use is this? See, the problem with this sort of shallow approach to life is that there's no bottom to it. And you and I, with all we're facing, we need something worthwhile. We, we need something we can stand on. We, we, we need depth and, and texture. We need the gospel. We, we need to not trivialize the gospel. We need to make sure that we don't run past the depth of the gospel to make sure people are, are entertained and, and have a great time. We want to make sure we stand there at the weight of the gospel with the, the fear of God and the seriousness of sin. We need to spend time and teach our children, what does the cross mean? Why is, is it necessary, the the judgment of God that falls on Jesus and the grace of God that comes from Jesus at the cross. We, we need to celebrate the victory of the resurrection. We need to teach our children the joy of actually being reconciled to God. You need to bask in the joy of being forgiven. Your soul needs to feel forgiveness. We don't, we don't want to be empty-handed. I think the preacher is teaching us here that without Christ, Fun leaves us empty-handed. Verse 3, he puts that mask down and picks up another in verse 4. He turns his attention from being the person that likes to have fun all the time, and it goes just the opposite direction to the achiever. So here's the second thing I want you to notice. Number two, without Christ, achievement, even achievement, leaves us dissatisfied. Look with me in verse 4, 5, and 6. Just look at the list. Just look at the list of the projects. 
Here's what the preacher has done now. He's put on the mask of the overachiever. I mean, look at the number of things this guy was able to get done. This is the guy that gets up early in the morning. He goes out and exercises, gets that done, and uh, then he, he sets out on accomplishing things. This is the one you can see on Instagram and Facebook, Facebook that's doing all the great stuff. I mean, look at, just look at the list in verse 4. He says, I, I did great works. Remember Solomon. You can go and read of Solomon. He did all of these. I did great works. I built houses in verse 4. Go with me to verse 4. I, I built vineyards. I had gardens in verse 5. I, I built parks in verse 5. I planted fruit trees in verse 5. Verse 6, I built these reservoirs, these pools, so that we could irrigate the other trees that I had planted that became a forest in verse 6. I mean, here's the, here's the overachiever. Here's the workaholic. Here's the builder. This is some of you. This is the person that, can, that, that not only works hard, but is able to work smart. When you want a job done, this is the person you, you ask her to do it because she's going to make it. She's going to make the list and then go right through the list and check them off and get the things done. It's not just hard. This is not just hard work. This is smart work. And it is genuinely impressive. I mean, you, you read all that Solomon did here in verses four, five and six. It's impressive. Some of you live that kind of life. You've put on that mask and that's what you do. You find your identity in the fact that God has given you the ability to not only strategize, but to actually implement. You go and do it, and it. those around you look at that, and that is really impressive. There is a downside to this person. You go back with them to verse 4 and 5 and 6. You find out that this person can be a little bit selfish, even though he doesn't seem. He would never consider himself selfish. But notice how he describes what it is that he's doing in verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. Go to verse 5. I did this for myself. Go to verse 6. I did this for myself. So what you have here is someone that worked hard, who worked smart, he's able to achieve. It feels like he's doing this either for someone or maybe for the community, maybe for someone close to him. But there is an element to where his or her ego Ego is in it. That's why I'm finding my identity. I did this for myself. There's something else there in verses 4, 5, and 6. When you go and read that, you'll find out that there is a false sense of security. If you're an achiever, what happens is you can feel real secure in your achievement. The way uh, Solomon did it here, when you read all of the elements in verses 4, 5, and 6, there is... An impressive list of great things done, but when you read it, it sounds a whole lot like the Garden of Eden. Solomon's building his own paradise. I mean, if you go and read this, the go and read the history of Solomon's life and all the things that he built and what he did, not only for God, but ends up doing it for himself, and you see is a real sense of I'm building my own paradise which we forget the words of John Milton, that paradise is lost. Don't forget that the Garden of Eden, that's where sin entered the world, man was separated from God, and since then all creation groans. 
When you read the story of Solomon, he says, I've, I've put on the mask of being an achiever, and here's what I've done. I'm building, building. That's where my identity is. And he has all of these great elements for this paradise, for the Garden of Eden, but one terrible thing is missing. You can read from verse 1 down to verse 23, there is no mention whatsoever of God. Be careful how you build your life, even when you call yourself a Christian, if what you're doing can be mirrored by a society that doesn't have Christ. Be careful where you find your identity. Maybe it's not fun. Maybe that's not you. you I mean, it's not, not to say you don't like to have fun. That's not your driving force. You're an achiever. Be careful when that becomes your identity. There is one more dark thing to, to mention. Drop down to verse 7. Not only is there a false sense of security and is it kind of selfish, this person, if you're not careful, at the very outer edge of ugliness is verse 7. He says, I, I bought male and female slaves for myself. I had slaves born in my home. In other words, I, look, I got a job to get done. I have to get it done anyway. I can. I'm, I'm okay with using people to do it. This is the view of someone that's achieving, right? That's able to kind of let their conscience go somewhere else. You got a job to do. You need to get it done no matter what. This is, um, at, at least, this is the willingness to, to value achievement over people, to get the job done at all costs even if it means hurting someone. And when you read this whole section from verse 1 all the way down to verse 7, what you find out, it, it is completely devoid of thinking about God, whether you're focused on fun or focused on achievement. This is a, this is a false paradise. It's driven by a strong sense of self and not prioritizing people. And that's the actual antithesis to the gospel. Ours is the very negative of this. We are reminded that, that earth, this is, this is not our home. That fun's not the center and achievement's not the center. Christ is the center. And, and people are not to be used for our achievement. People are to be loved and served and brought to Christ. I mean, that's the whole point of the gospel, to, to win people to Christ. We believe that God is glorified when sinning people become saved people at the cross of Jesus. So verses 1 through 3, we see that without Christ, fun becomes empty-handed. Verses 4, 5, and 6, and 7, we see that without Christ, achievement leaves us dissatisfied. Let's turn our attention to another mask. He puts the achieving mask down. He picks up another. It looks a lot like our culture. Here's a third point I want you to see. Without Christ, influence means nothing. Influence. I use that word because today they're called influencers. You find them in verses 8, 9, and 10. That's where the rich and the famous hang out. There in verses 8, 9, and 10, here's what Solomon does. He decides to stop by the Playboy Mansion to see what all the hype and the media is about. You read his life, you find out that's who he actually becomes. 
And there in verse 8, he starts rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous. Let me read it to you. And listen to what starts happening in verse 8. Here's my new experiment. I gathered for myself silver and gold. I got money. The treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, male and female. I have many concubines. History tells us 300 concubines. There in verse 9. So here's what I did. Now, I got money and I got sex and power. Verse 9. I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my wisdom stayed with me. Here's the culture. Verses 8 and 9 introduce us to the culture of money and sex and power, the influencers. These are the people that you follow on Instagram. These are the ones that you you know their songs by heart. You learned them on Spotify. These are the people that that you, you know their life. They are so famous you're aware of who they were with or now have divorced and are remarried or just hooking up with. And the preacher says, look, I wasn't just watching now, verses 8 and 9. I joined that crowd for a little while. Here seems to be where the modern aspirations for what success looks like. Most of us don't live like this. Most of us would not. Uh, We didn't do what the preacher's done. He's gone and joined that crowd. We don't live like that. What we do, though, is we voyeurize that crowd. Watch this set. We even pick up cues here and there, influenced in some degree by that. We, we see the kind of lifestyle that's lived there, and the preacher takes it one step further. In verse 10, he gets to the pinnacle. There he finds hedonism. Verse 10, he says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. I did what I wanted. Here Here is a young world that we live in that's being discipled more by the culture than it is by Christ and His church. You see, the the sexual revolution that started in the 60s and picked up speed through the 70s and 80s was checked a little bit by AIDS, but then it got over that and picked up again, has now morphed into areas we never dreamed of, and our 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 children are being discipled by that culture more than the church. If you're not careful, that's what you aspire. That's where the influence comes from. And, And the truth of the matter is, at the end of verse 10, the preacher says, all of this pleasure, that was my reward. Now watch what happens. After looking at fun, seeing does that work, I want to be a worker and achieve. Does that work? Oh, you know what? I want to be, I want to be um, like what I see, been influenced by. I want to have money and sex and power. Get to verse 11, and the preacher is looking all around and all the ground that he's covered so far and fun and achievement and hedonism, and he does, an, he does a sobering assessment in verse 11. Notice, notice what he says. He uses all the strong words in verse 11. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it, and it was vanity. It was spitting in the wind or striving after the wind. It was havil. It was a vapor. There was no gain, no yitron. There's nothing left. 
And every bit of it, verse 11, every bit of it was done under the sun. Living like this life is all there actually is. You see, Ecclesiastes, again, it's, it's not anti-gospel. Ecclesiastes is here to show us the actual need for the gospel. Maybe you haven't, I've covered some ground, maybe you haven't seen yourself in any of these people yet. You're not the person that all you live for is fun. You're not the person who just, who really is, um, you feel good when you achieve. You're not the person that kind of daydreams about uh, money, sex, and power. Maybe this next section You'll see yourself. Number four, without Christ, deep thinking is depressing. Without Christ, deep thinking. Let me show you why I get that. We'll start in verse 12. Let's just read a little bit, and you'll see that this is a thinking person. This is the one that, um, that is introspective. Verse 12, the preacher says, I've picked up another mask. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man who comes after the king do? Only what has already been done. And I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, just as there's more gain in light than in darkness. This is the thinking quiet person. This is when you're presented with an issue or you're asked a question, you don't just blurt out an answer or make an impulsive decision. You, you got to think it through. It may take you a minute to make up your mind. A reflective person. If you were in the country, we would say that, that still water runs deep. You talk about a quiet person. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds like it fits. That's you. And the preacher takes up that mask, and he comes to the conclusion that really it's better to be like this. I mean, he even says that in Proverbs, right? Even a fool who who keeps silent is considered wise. And here in verse 14, look what he says. The wise person, it's good, to be, it's good to be wise. The wise person has his eyes in his head, and the fool is the one walking around in darkness. And yet, as he continues to think, keep the passage now, keep going through it. As he keeps thinking, look at him. He takes this downward turn because there's not a bottom there. He keeps thinking about the injustices of life. Now look, look at verse 15 and 16 and 17. Read it. The preacher says, And then I said in my heart, See, he's thinking, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been forgotten. And here's the question that Jonathan Edwards asked. He used this passage. How does the wise man die? He dies just like the fool. Verse 17, And the more I think about it, the more depressed I am. And I hate my life. You see what's going on here? He thought about what it's like to have a lot of fun in life. That got him nowhere. He thought about achieving. That didn't get him anywhere. He thought about uh, being uh, one of those people that's really got it all, that the world values, money, sex, and power. That didn't get him anywhere. Then he thought, okay, I'll be this really wise, introspective, thoughtful person. But the more I think about the world, the more I think about the way things ought to be, the more... 
the more unjust it feels. And what's happening is he hears footsteps. He's being stalked. The preacher's being stalked in this passage by death. What does it pay for me to be a good person? What does it pay to me to be, for me to be thoughtful, to be wise, to be smart? What does it pay for me to read a bunch of books? If, if I die just like a fool does. It comes to the conclusion that death is impartial. It is indiscriminate. This is when you get into your own head. And it starts to go into a downward spiral. And you start thinking, what's the, what's the use? This is Jeremiah under the juniper tree saying, I just want to die. I mean, here he is in verse 18. He says, look, I thought about life and I hate it. Verse 19, I thought about all my stuff and I hate it. I, verse 20, I thought about all the injustice in the world and um, it puts me in despair. Verse 21, when I think about how things go, it's a great evil. It's an injustice. And then he gets to the very bottom in verse 23. Look what he says. All his days are full of sorrow, his work is vexation, at night his heart doesn't rest, and it all seems worthless. All of that. Every bit of it. All the fun, all the achievement, all the success, all the hard work, money, sex, power, influence, wisdom, all of that without God. Not one mention of God from verse 1 to verse 23. And it's like he wakes up in verse 24. And there's God. Verse 24 and verse 25 and verse 26. Finally, God is in the mix. And now when God is in the mix, what happens is, yeah, I mean, life has all kinds of issues. There are a lot of things I've got to face. There are pains and frustrations and anxieties. But my perspective changes. Verse 24, he says, you know what? Everything. It's a gift from God. In fact, I'm able to smile and talk and hot coffee I had this morning. It's a gift from God. What are you complaining about if you're a child of God? Everything you have is a gift from God. Verse 25, you, you wouldn't have any of it if it were not from God. Verse 26, even those deeper things like uh, wisdom, look at it, knowledge. If there's any spark of joy in your heart, if you're a child of God, that is a gift from God. He even has this statement in verse 26 about the sinners and those that are not sinners, and there's this real feeling of justice in it. All of that pointing us to the greatness of God found at the cross of Jesus. The justice of God. Go with me to the cross. God is holy. Man's a sinner. And there at the cross, Jesus takes on the justice of God, the full judgment of God in the place of sinners, and then gives grace to any sinner who will believe. It's a reminder. It's a reminder to you that without Christ, the frustration never ends. But with Christ, the frustration never wins. It's there and strong 
that God is stronger in Christ. For those of you that are Christians, I want you to take hold of what you know to already be true. Take the gospel and, and, and like a healing agent into your heart. And remember that your perspective is that your God is in control. For those of you that are not Christians, I want you to consider the fact that all that you've been pursuing, whether it's entertainment or fun or achievement or being smart, well-read, wise, none of that comes to anything without Christ. All of that is used by God to bring you to faith and love in Christ. You join me as we pray together and ask God's grace to be extended to us as we seek to live our lives for Jesus. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> With your heads bowed this morning, I want to talk to those of you that are Christians, men and women here. I hope that you've seen yourself in one of the masks that Solomon put on. And I hope you've seen that you have Christ. You have a bottom to stand on. That although it feels really frustrating sometimes, He's there. He's holding you. That there's nothing in this world that can take you from the hand and the grip of God in Christ. For those of you that are unsure and you feel like you're just dropping with no bottom, I, I just want to point you to the goodness of God found in Jesus. You've heard that. Ecclesiastes gives us the need for the gospel. The rest of the Bible points us to Jesus. Father, I pray that you'll take this by grace that you'll use it for the good of your kingdom, for the glory of the name of Jesus, for the church to be built up, for sinners to be saved, brought to Christ. Forgive us for the times when we've lived with despair. Help us to find our confidence in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.